everybody. Thank you for braving the extreme cold out there. And I guess the bad stuff hasn't got here yet. Ten below is no big deal. Well, the real cold is still coming. Okay, good morning. We're on the same PowerPoint here because uh, we only got through this one slide last time, but we did get through it. Eric, why don't you begin us with prayer and then make sure that way we'll know your mic's working too. That's right. Testing. Yep. There we go. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our day. We thank you that we can gather under the means of grace and learn more about your word. And we pray, Lord, for our teacher, Bob. We pray that we would understand uh, Acts and that we would do so so that we may persevere and live godly lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're studying Paul's sermon at Pisidian Antioch at the synagogue. And one of the reasons we're spending an awful lot of time on it is that this is one of the longer sermons recorded in the book of Acts. And Luke does so, I believe, to set the theme that will be repeated as we go through the book and to bring about echoes from Luke and reviews or echoes, however you want to say it, and earlier in Acts. So there are themes that are being brought out here, which we've been talking about. And I think one of the times I taught on this, I actually here printed out the entire sermon and counted every time it says that God did something. And I, I think I revised my count. It's somewhere around 22. So... It's not um, a strain to say that what um, Paul is doing is talking about what God did, the actions of God, both in Old Testament Israel and in through Messiah. So then last week we looked at this 21-22. Notice it contrasts what they did with what God did. They asked for a king. God gave them Saul. Now you know from the Old Testament that wasn't such a great plan, was it, Saul? But they they, uh, were rejecting God. They had a bad attitude. But not that God wasn't going to raise up a king, but it was going to be, as we found out, David, a man after God's own heart. And we, we mentioned last week that there was an echo from Luke. Uh, they asked for Barabbas but rejected Jesus. And so they, there was an issue there. So let's go to verse 23, Acts 13, 23 to 25. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. After John had proclaimed before his coming, a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. 
So let's look at that and then we'll break out some of the issues in there, particularly uh, I'm, I'm seeing the term promise there. Okay, that's thematic. Promise is very, very important in the Bible. And so God had promised that there would be a Davidic king and that the Davidic king would be in some ways the son of David. And there's also the idea of repentance, which becomes a theme. It's preached often. We'll look at some of the verses on that. And that this repentance was something that should be rightly included in the universal call. Depending on who you've been hearing and listening to, you'll run into people who deny that. And some people will claim repentance is works. And if you, if you preach repentance as part of the gospel, then you're guilty of preaching works and salvation. That's what some people say. They couldn't be more wrong. And some have gone so far as in order to deny the reality of what's taught in Luke Acts to claim that the gospels aren't for the church. And there, there's some different message for different people, not the church. And then some even deny that most of Acts is even for the church. And that uh, false doctrine goes by the name of hyper-dispensationalism. I wrote an article refuting that, but uh, there are always going to be people caught up by these specious claims. Because repentance is preached throughout Luke-Acts, and it is rightfully part of the Great Commission. And there's not two different Gospels, one for the Jews and another for the Gentiles, because the church is comprised of redeemed persons, Jews and Gentiles. We've been studying that in Ephesians too. Who's the one new man? Jew and Gentile. This was so important to Paul. It's, it's, it's really not believable that after all the time we have here and Paul having been taught by Christ himself, that somehow he got it wrong and that there's no one new man. There's just two different groups. One saved by one way and the other by another. Someone this morning, I think, uh, Eric, you mentioned, there are people out there that have a doctrine called dual covenant. Has anybody heard of that doctrine? Dual covenant says that the Jews have their own way of salvation that's not through faith in Christ the way the Gentiles do. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Brother Eric. Yeah, I, I um, not to mention any names, but that is a heretical doctrine. If Bob and I were talking, and, you know, we run into people with all kinds of different ideas, and, and you have to say, are they, are they saved? Are they, are they believers in Jesus Christ, you know, through repentance and faith? Or, or not. And uh, the other thing I was going to mention is that there's so much consistency. It's really clear that the, that the Mosaic Covenant was a conditional covenant. That's so clear. And then there's, in Jeremiah, there's prophecy and other places that there would be a new covenant that would come. Yeah, it, God will give a new yeah, heart. Yeah, everything is so consistent with Ephesians, with Acts, with with uh, the, the Old prophets, Testament. Yeah, if you know Psalms. all this, yeah, it's all comprehensively very clear. You know? uh, 
That's what Paul is doing here. That's why I brought that up. If you read Paul's sermons, and he's bringing out these things because it was their Jewish scriptures that taught them. And John the Baptist came as a prophet, and he taught repentance. And it wasn't just for some, it was for all. Yes, Eric. You know, um, it's interesting, this phrase, too, where he, um, John the Baptist says, Behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. That phrase, the one who is coming after me, is a messianic claim. And I think it's, and you probably have the Greek there, Bob, but it's a participle. It literally is the one who comes. So do you remember in John the Baptist's ministry, the question is, he's going to be beheaded? And so he sends a question back from his disciples back to Jesus is he the one who comes, or should we look for another? What that's a reference to is Psalm 118.26, Blessed is he who comes oh, in the yeah. name of Yahweh. Well, what's interesting is that psalm was probably written around the time of Ezra, and it was where they were, re, they were rebuilding the temple. This is Psalm 118. So the question is, well, where did it originate? Well, if you look at Isaiah 59.20, there was a promise of a coming one to Israel, and that would be the Messiah. So this phrase has a rich background in the Old Testament as being messianic. In fact, remember, Jesus leaves the temple, and he says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes. He's using that phrase in the name of Yahweh. And so this is a rich messianic phrase that you see time and time again. And uh, so I just wanted to point that out. That's a good point. And the sandals of whose feet I'm not not worthy to untie. Look at the humility of John the Baptist, because that would be the role of just a common servant. Okay. And John the Baptist is saying that Messiah is so great and so important that I don't even, I'm not even worthy to have the role of the most common servant. That role's too high for me. And so John the Baptist is exemplary in his humility, and he's exalting the Lord. Yes. This uh, term, on sandals unworthy to entire, reminds me, this would be covenantal language because it reminds me of the book of Ruth, where he un- takes off his sandals in order to make this covenant. Well, uh, he's unworthy to untie because God himself would untie it, not him. He has unworthy, and he's come for men's souls, not for land. Anyway, so Interesting. Uh, I, I think of that being covenantal, kind of both Old Testament and New Testament language. Thank you. The point is that everything's focused on God's action and the great action of God. As I said, there were 22 uh, statements in this sermon about God taking action. And I would point out in these two verses here, or three verses, 23 to 25, there's God is the one who gave the promise and God is the one who keeps it. How did he keep his promise? By bringing to Israel a Savior. And this Savior would be one who is of the lineage of David, the King of David. Uh, And then John proclaiming is really, as we see elsewhere, a fulfillment of promise. Because remember Malachi said that he would send Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And later we find out that John the Baptist fulfilled that role in that passage. 
and he, John the Baptist, wasn't claiming to be the Messiah, but one who was a servant who pointed people to him. Now, I have here, I think it may be available on the website, but one way or another, I decided to do a little search in the Greek and look for the term repent, which is a verb in repentance, uh, and, which would be a noun. And I found two pages just in Luke Acts, which is probably the most concentrated um, use of the terms in the New Testament. It's found elsewhere, but a lot of them are in Luke X. So it's obviously thematic in Luke X. And let me just take the term repentance. I have a bunch of them here. Luke 3, 3, it starts already right there about John the Baptist. And he came into all the district around Jordan preaching repentance, the baptism of repentance for their forgiveness of sins. The phrase repentance for forgiveness of sins becomes a key thing later in Acts and in, uh, it's part of the very preaching of the gospel. It says in Luke twenty four forty seven that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. That's thematic. That's in Luke 24, 47. So as this is happening, what we see in Acts is literal proof that what was predicted and commanded to the church is literally happening. Um, could somebody look up Acts 26 20 while I find a cough drop? I'm getting there. Eric, you have it. Go ahead. I've got the microphone and I've got the verse. Okay, you get to do it. it. That Eric there. I get to do it. Oh, okay. Um, So this is Acts. Oh, I'm in 27. 2620. 2620. Boy, I I better get with it here. Okay, here it is. Acts 2620. But, But kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea, and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Amen. Now, we might want to discuss that one, because some of the... That was a big problem for the people who claimed that repentance is a work, and it has no place in the gospel or the Great Commission or anything like it. Or others say it's only for the Jews. They have a real problem with that particular verse. Okay? Because here it says that even to the Gentiles. Now, that's my New American Standard. So the implication is the means of of hearing and believing is the same for Jews and Gentiles. 
and that repentance is preached to both and that there's not a different gospel for the Jews than there is for the Gentiles. But uh, hyper-dispensationalists, some of them claim that the church happened somewhere in the middle of Acts and they can't agree on where. But I would suggest that this is a problem. Uh, Yes, uh, Norm. Um, Could you comment on Acts 2, 37 and 38? This is, uh, you know, at Pentecost and the people, when they heard Peter preaching, they were pierced in their heart and they said, what shall we do? And then he said, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins. Oh, yeah. My question there, it links baptism in with repenting for the remission of sins. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for asking. We've run into that. There are people out there who believe in baptismal regeneration and that you're not saved until you're actually baptized. And that's one of their proof texts. Now, good, that reminded me of something I want to talk about. You don't find ordo salutis through induction. Hold on here. Let that sink in. What's induction would be the, to show this and this and this and this and this and that all of these things are valid and applied to the, all of the people within the case that you're describing. Uh, what would be, a, or like a chain argument, what would be, I think there's a good one in Romans 8, remember? Whom he called, he justified, whom justified. Is that right? Can you, if you have any, feel free to. Okay, so uh, when I was uh, a new Christian, I was led to the Lord through Assemblies of God people. And I was baptized in Assemblies of God Church, and we had that um, coffee house that I showed you one time up here, down the corner of downtown, and uh, we're leading people to Christ. And so when I got decided uh, that God called me to preach. I was a chemical engineering student. I moved up here and went to their Bible college. And thankfully, they had some great teachers. But the thing that was distinctive about that denomination was that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was a secondary experience and that the sign that you received it is speaking in tongues. So they would not believe that you were baptized in the spirit if you didn't speak in tongues. And so people would, they had tarrying meetings. I don't know if they still, I think most of them, a lot of them have gone seeker now, but in those days, Sunday night was often a tarrying meeting where after the Sunday night service, you would go to the altar, as it was called, and ask God to do something for you. And it's certainly not wrong to, for a group to cry out to God and ask for help. I not wanting to belittle that. But uh, when I got into Bible college and I started looking at the evidence for that, I was I was just kind of, okay, I think you could argue that things happened. It didn't always say that when the Holy Spirit came on somebody, they spoke in tongues, but sometimes it does. Acts 2 was the main proof text. 
But then later, and I had such great teachers, I didn't want to be disrespectful. Uh, to this day, I thank God for that I happened to be there when those guys were there. They, uh, they just taught us sound doctrine. And I noticed my best teachers rarely talked about this. I think they knew it probably wasn't that sound. But um, I eventually wrote an article, so CICministry.org gives an article on baptism of the Holy Spirit. Here's what's wrong. They're trying to use induction to prove a doctrine when the sequence in the induction doesn't even hold. Okay? So in other words, here's the issue. If it's universally true that in every case, only those who have been filled with the Holy Spirit, which that's another issue, whether it's a secondary experience, speak, they always speak in tongues, and if they haven't, they haven't really been filled with the Spirit. And so I wrote an article about that with a caveat that I love my teachers and I don't want to disrespect them, but I don't think this holds water. And here was what's wrong. They're using induction when the sequence doesn't even actually fit. It doesn't fit every case in Acts. Okay, because there were other cases where people were actually filled with the Holy Spirit and that convinced the apostles that they were converted. Not that they were higher order Christians with a secondary experience. And so I talk about that in my article. Induction doesn't work if there's even one exception. Does that make sense logically? Uh, There's a logical fallacy uh, that has to do with, well, there's several logical fallacies. One of them has to do with correspondence being assumed to be causation. That's a logical fallacy. And uh, I've illustrated that with my, my poor son. He, he's, he's a strong, grown man now. Uh, but he, when he was a little kid, I used to take him with me. I went to the bank to, to make a deposit. And if, I, if you had a little kid in the car, they'd give you a helium field balloon for going to the bank. So he'd come along and we'd come home with a helium field balloon in the car and bring it into the house. Well, we did that several times. At one time, and then we had other balloons around that weren't full of helium. Well, my son was saying when he was a little kid, the string makes it go up to the ceiling. Because everyone with a string he saw would be go up to the ceiling, and everyone without a string would just lay on the ground. And so I was trying to teach him science. I said, you know, no, 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 that's not the right, that's not causation. This is what's going on. He wouldn't believe me. So we did an experiment in the kitchen. So I got a scissors, took the thing, cut the string off, let go. You should have seen his eyes. It's a miracle. And uh, so the, the correspondence would be well, when you see strings on balloons, they float. Uh, of course, once you know the science, the string's there so you don't lose it because it's going to float because it has helium in it. So it's easy to be deceived trying to use that kind of theory. And so you have 
correspondence doesn't prove causation. Induction only works if you have a universal going on without exceptions, as in Romans 8. All of these things are this. That's really a chain argument. And so when you go through all the cases where it mentions somebody being filled with spirit, you literally do not have consistency about the circumstances in Acts. I did that in that one article. It's just not consistent. Here's another logical fallacy, and that is confusing description with prescription. Let that sink in. Description doesn't equal prescription. Now, there are many cases that. Now, you need to know that when you're studying narrative. Narrative would be a story about something happened. Paul's sermon in Pisidian Antioch is part of narrative. How do we know what's prescriptive and what's descriptive? Well, we know what's descriptive. He was there, and this is what he preached. Why make a big deal about repentance? The way you know, because the Holy Spirit-inspired author determines the meaning. So there's ways of studying narrative to determine the author's meaning. And what Luke does to emphasize things and reveal meaning is repetition, echoes, reviews, and previews, words in the mouth of of authoritative people. John the Baptist said this. Jesus said this. Jesus commanded this. Peter preached this. Paul preached this. Stephen preached. And so you go through, and the preaching of repentance, you see, is thematic. Does that make sense? And so I'm not going out of school in a bad way by saying preaching of repentance is valid in the universal call. Why? Because Jesus commanded it. Jesus is God incarnate. He's the authoritative spokesperson, the one who is of the descendant of David. He's the one who commanded this. So if I say that, I'm not using logical fallacy. I'm citing the head of the church who prescriptively said do this. Now, if you went through all of the Luke Acts and you found one time somebody mentioned repentance in some situation, then you'd have to think about, well, what's the implications of that? We know it's true it was mentioned there, but what are the implications? And maybe we, we want to be careful. We don't want to do the string on the balloon thing if it's not valid. But in this case, the reason I printed all this out, just from Luke Acts, is that this is not making a false induction or making description into prescription or going off of the dotted lines and trying to come up with some extreme doctrine. This is part and parcel of the entire message of Luke Acts. Luke was inspired by the Holy Spirit. What he wrote is in here in Scripture, and we can determine his meaning. Now, did Luke 2.38 mean that you're only saved if you're baptized? Well, now you're starting to go into the area of the logical fallacies. You're taking one passage and one incident and out of context trying to create an inductive 
thing that wouldn't necessarily add up. What can we know? Well, you have to keep looking around. Does Luke Acts tell us that you're saved if and only if you are baptized? Or does it say you are saved if and only if is, by the way, if and only is the biconditional, uh, uh, sine qua non, without which not. Okay, does it say that? Is it trying to get us to say that? Um, there, there are counter examples. There are, there are examples where the reason they did baptize people was because they saw that they were saved. So anyway, keep thinking about this. If you have comments, I'm, I don't want to just dominate the time here because this is the priesthood of every believer. Yes, Brother Eric, yeah, over here. I, uh, oh, and then we got Norm, too. Then right, Norm right. next, okay. Um, one thing that's interesting, this is Acts 2.38. This is a fascinating little verse, like you say. People use it for all kinds of things. First of all, repent. The Hebraic concept of repentance involves you know, that you you not only are sorry and, and remorseful and, you know, want to be forgiven for your sins, but it also means that you turn to God. Now, they don't include that here, but it's in so many other texts that we know that it's repentance and believing in the Savior, Jesus right. Christ. We know that, even though they don't include that here. And then I also have heard a, a, an alternative reading Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ because of the forgiveness of your sins. That word for the forgiveness of your sins, and I don't know the Greek, so uh, Harry, you guys you go into my Bible or my briefcase. That would be find a question, my little Greek really. Bible and look up Acts two thirty eight, and it's a little gray. Yeah, look up Acts two thirty eight in the Greek. Um, okay, Norm, let's. let's you brought it up, oh, no, Mike. I was going to say, if, if baptism always had to be associated with salvation, then the thief on the cross didn't have a chance. That's right. That's usually the counterexample that we give when we hear such teachings. Now, the thief on the cross where he says, somebody look that up and see if that was in Luke. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll let somebody do that. Yes, go ahead with uh, Acts two thirty eight for the Greek, but grab your the mic there. Bob, was it repentance? Is that the term you guys want to know? We uh, want to know. We're looking at Acts two thirty eight where it says, "For the forgiveness of your sins." Oh, okay. Are we thinking yeah, of? So, is it hati? I don't, I'm not uh, sure. Four is ace there, and so ace in position. Yeah, oftentimes it's it can be into as Bob is saying this ace, and it can also be with a subjunctive mood. Particularly, it shows purpose. So there's a purpose behind their repentance is for the forgiveness of sins. And so that'd probably be a preposition of purpose. Um, there's the purpose behind repenting is for the forgiveness of sins. And one other point here in the I'd Acts, want to know if there was a deity of going on oh, there. Oh, okay. Um, let's see here. I'm yeah, now trying a, to put you on the spot. Your Greek is more current than mine. It looks like, you know, it's a genitive. Genitive. Uh, okay, so that leaves a little bit of ambiguity, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, so it's probably for purpose, for, with the view that or with the purpose of forgiveness. That, well, that's be how you would, how you would preach it. Yeah, exactly. Now remember, uh, saints, as we read this, the whole thing that's being preached 
is utterly offensive to the Jews. Yeah. So the audience isn't going to accept any of this. Okay? So this audience is hostile because they're the ones that wanted Barabbas, not Jesus. They're there for Pentecost. And, but God saved a remnant there. And so if they're willing to listen to all of the things that are preached, who Jesus is, what he did, why we need him, what he commands us to do, you don't have to pick and choose. When God converts, there is a passage that says that repentance is granted. They saw that God had granted repentance to the Gentiles. So I try to tell people, preach the whole counsel of God. Don't worry about it. Do I have to narrow down so I say it just a certain way? Oh, no, no, don't say it this way. Say it just this way. Or then they say it ways that it's never said. Invite Jesus into your heart. That's what it turned into be in evangelicalism. Uh, That's just confusing. What's that all about? So the point is, everything that God does, the whole thing, when people are pierced to the heart, what should we do? They're probably already converted. I know that's what happened to me, because as soon as I was sure that I was going to hell, if I didn't believe in Christ, and I knew that I'd been blaspheming, and I knew that it was all true, at that moment, I was willing to do whatever needed to be done. Because I was immediately, regeneration is a point in time, I was immediately, I was cursing this little Pentecostal preacher who I could blame for the whole situation. My fiance had become a Christian. I was mad. And, that, and I said, I'm, that's, I was just, it was bad what I said, I wouldn't repeat it. But I was threatening this little Pentecostal preacher who had gone into Sheldon, Iowa, preaching the gospel on the streets, and Diane's brother had gotten saved, and this guy was bold. He'd go anywhere. Little guy, anybody could have beat him up. And uh, they, well, about that time, then when I got saved, they had a camp meeting going on down in Storm Lake, Iowa, in this great big tabernacle-type thing where they took the kids in the summer. And they said, well, we're going to take you. We want you to go down there uh, to the meeting. So I went down there, and here's that little guy that I had been threatening. He came and gave me a big hug. No, oh, he called me brother right away. And he said, we want you to tell your testimony. I said, I never, what's a testimony? I never heard of such a thing. And they said, well, just tell what God did. Well, they say, you know, I'm up front telling the story of being a chemical engineer student, the, the Convinced, turning away from the church, believing only in science. How I had this this is like two or three days after I was a Christian, and I was uh, I just told a story how I was saved, exactly what happened, and then I went and sat down, and then some preacher got up and called everybody to go to the altar that wanted to get saved in the place. All these people were running up the altar. Oh God, help me, help me! And I'm sitting there. <laughs> and Diane was sitting there. I'm sitting there. Uh, I don't know how to pray like this. I have no idea here. I didn't know uh, what was going on. It was so new. But see, 
we're not adding anything. When they said, well, you need to be baptized. And I said, well, I was baptized as a baby. Well, the pastor, God bless him, he said, well, I'm not going to make you do something. I said, well, do you think I should be baptized again? He said, just you go study the Bible and decide what it says. I said, I don't even know where to read. I've never read the Bible. Read the book of Acts. That's what he told me. So I went in and I read Acts and saw this verse, like we said. I called the pastor and said, I'll be baptized. And so I was baptized. Diane's brother was baptized. She was baptized. Her dad was baptized. They felt that they had a tank up there. The pastor said that they hadn't baptized anybody for decades uh, until this happened. And I knew that God saved me and that I knew Christ and that my sins were forgiven. I didn't feel, I didn't feel like anybody was adding anything by saying be baptized because I wanted to say I buried the, the old man. I read this. I wanted to do it. See, don't listen to these false teachers who turned everything into some goofy doctrine. Conversion is an act of God. And when God converts somebody, all those things that are in that chain argument in Romans 8 are true for that class of people. You talk about the chain argument when once you say whatever else you want to say here. Yeah, you know, I was just going to point out in then Acts two thirty eight, just three verses later, belief is assumed in verse forty one because it says, "So those who received his word were baptized." And Bob, yeah. has, Bob has taught us about that term reception. I looked in his Greek text; it is apodekamai. And remember, Bob, well, that means to welcome it exactly to warmly welcome. And so sometimes we look at language, and just because it doesn't say believe. The warmly welcoming would be the idea of received. It's really synonymous with belief and saving faith. And then so. we have a counterexample. This will help us understand why induction doesn't work unless it's universal. Okay. Um, there's a counterexample a little bit later in Acts where Simon the sorcerer was baptized and then later told by Peter that he had no part or parcel in this matter. He was a son of perdition. And then notice Simon said in the second person, well, you pray that this doesn't happen to me. Basically, Peter said, you and your money can go you know where. <laughs> perdition. And so you don't have a chain argument or an inductive sequence that proves a universal when you have any exceptions at all. So if Simon the sorcerer was baptized and then later told he was a son of the devil and he just left because he wanted to buy the Holy Spirit, that, that destroys the whole argument of the baptismal salvation people. Yes? Um, could you not say that um, you're, you're saying that salvation is the work of God and... Amen. Yeah. And, um, and, and others say that repentance is a work. Well, but repentance itself is a work of God. It is. He gra- God grants it. Now, uh, why does it say that in some places? Luann's over here. Uh, in some places, uh, like the one we quoted here later in Acts, doing deeds... 
Notice this, they kept declaring both the Acts 26.20, those of Damascus first and Jerusalem, and then throughout the region of Judea, even the Gentiles, they should repent, turn to God. Notice that's uh, appositional, it's called. It's synonymously parallel. Repent and turn to God are two ways of saying the same thing. So metanoeo and epistrepo are saying the same thing. Repentance is turning to God. Turning to God is repentance. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, performing deeds appropriate of repentance. Why would Luke say that? You do the deeds first and then convince somebody. Well, see, there, I'm not sure I haven't looked at that verse in extreme detail, although I've certainly looked at it and expounded it before. But if you think back to the Luke Acts, there were people who wanted to follow Jesus who hadn't really repented. And then when they heard certain things, they'd leave. And then you have the Simon the Sorcerer who was baptized, but he didn't want to do anything that would show that he repented. He wanted to keep up his magic business selling magic in the supernatural. And so that is telling us that those who repent and turn to God, their lives change. You don't live like the pagans. You don't continue to do whatever. We'll see that when we get into the last uh, part of Ephesians. Okay? If you're going to have a church that's one new man, Jew and Gentile, the Jews don't even want to eat with Gentiles. And they have their strict rules. And the Gentiles, and some of this happened in Ephesus, by the way, in Acts, they're used to all kinds of debauchery and wickedness. And in some of their situations, uh, immorality was an act of worship. Okay? And so why wouldn't they say deeds appropriate to repentance? You can't go on to the pagan love feast and the temple debauchery and say you're a Christian. Okay? So it's not teaching works to be saved. It's teaching salvation changes lives. Does that make sense? Okay, Luann. Yeah, this is just really timely because I have been in an email discussion with somebody and I was kind of slapped up inside you know, the head because of the comments that were coming from this individual because... Um, when I started the conversation, I didn't know her, um, but thought that she was a Christian. And maybe she is, I don't know. But she's trapped in a system like this. And it's just so sad because her first comment was, is that, you know, you better check out Bob's teaching on baptism because he believes that it's just, um, you know, a reminder kind of thing and that it, you don't have to do it. Um, and she gave me a link to something else, um, another teacher I had never heard. And so, um, and I'm, you know, to be polite, I read this other teacher, and he was talking about all the different versions of baptism, and, you know, many of them we would agree with that they're not right, like the baptism in Jesus' name only, the oneness Pentecostals. Okay. And most of them, too, you know, you're being baptized into a church, whether you're into the Catholic Church, into the oneness Pentecostal Church, you're baptized into the church. And so with this individual, um, you know, we kept going back and forth and back and forth, and I finally just asked her, I had to ask her several times, but I said, are you... Are you telling me then you were not saved until you were baptized? And she finally came and said, 
that was right. She was not saved until after baptism. And it was so, so sad. It's to think that. baptism salvation. Yeah. Right. And, you know, and a lot of it traces back to Charles Finney and a lot of that stuff too. They don't, it doesn't stop there. The false teaching. It's not just there, but they also teach that babies aren't sinners. Children yeah. aren't sinners. Finney denied the imputation of Adam's sin right. to the human race. Right, and then it teaches that once you're baptized, you can raise to perfection on this side. Yeah. So there's a lot of corruption that just goes on and on, but they don't tell you about that. Yeah, that's good old American Christianity. In, in, um, we invent things, but we need to go back to Scripture alone, yes. Finney was a heretic, by the way. If you didn't know that, he's considered a great American revivalist. He's a blatant heretic, uh, plagian heretic. I turned in a paper about Finney when I was in seminary to my church history professor, proving that Finney's doctrine and that of Plagius were identical. And uh, I mean, that's published on a CIC site somewhere. Finney did, he, I, I was quoting this. Where were we? Were we doing radio when I quoted Finney? Yeah. He says, there's nothing in religion, says Finney, beyond the ordinary powers of nature. Yeah. Everything that happens is a cause that by, through the right use of means. So salvation and sanctification for Finney is an engineering issue. There's no particular miracle. It's just doing the right use of means. So why is Finney considered a great American evangelist when he was in fact a horrible heretic that is so man-centered that even Rome wouldn't want him. I just had a quick comment as we were talking about repentance and the changing of life. I see baptism as as really being an act of obedience Mm -hmm. through that change in your life. Right, those who turn to God, that's what the case was with me. (laughs) I hadn't heard of a testimony. They didn't tell me I had to do a testimony to be saved, although we need to confess Christ. But once I was saved, when they asked me to do that, not everybody would be able to get in front of 500 young people three days. I don't know. Maybe that was an indication that God was going to call me to be a preacher. I, I mean, I can't say, but I didn't feel on the spot, I just got up and told, I, I asked the guy, what's the testimony? Tell what God did for you. I said, oh, I can do that. So I just did it. Uh, but see, we, we're not adding things. We're describing what conversion looks like. Okay? And what is dangerous in the church is that groups that are cult-like will use the fact that new Christians are wanting to be pleasing to God in order to abuse them and control them and sometimes take all their money. You're not, they're going to dangle you over the pit until you do everything they say. You do this way, you talk this way, you dress this way, you come to only this church and no other church, you do everything the way we said, and if you're baptized, it has to be according to a certain way. (coughs) (coughs) I consider that abusive. And that's when one of the problems, the person Lance mentioned was somebody who had 
um, contact me who said she came to the Lord through reading CAC articles. But this group got a hold of her, and uh, that's kind of what they do. They they look for the new Christians and then grab them and control them, and they won't let them go. Seventh Day Adventists. There's lots of groups like that. So beware. They'll they'll do all of this using the fact that new Christians want to please God and serve God. They'll start controlling you. Where I love the pastor. Part of the reason that church hadn't had to baptize anybody for decades. Well, this guy was a brand new pastor there was that they were so legalistic and eccentric, nobody would even go near there. Diane grew up across the park from that church, and her parents warned her, those are weird people, don't even go near them. <laughs> but once they got a gospel pastor in here, the whole family is being baptized in that church. But see, there's these eccentricities that have historically arisen in, a, in American Christianity that are bizarre. And it's actually a barrier to the gospel. All right? And so that pastor, God bless him, he didn't say your your previous baptism was illegitimate because you were just an infant. You must be baptized this way by this formula. He said, well, here, take your Bible and go read. And you just tell, come back and tell me what you found out. And I came back and I said, I want to be baptized. Yes. I, I can't resist actually, uh, you know, kind of supporting what you just said. I, I was thinking earlier when you talked about your experience when you were a young guy, when you read the book of Acts, you probably didn't read it as a theologian. You read it just to get a comprehensive, you just read through it, and you probably weren't thinking about, okay, are these descriptive things or prescriptive things? You just read, and you get the full counsel of God. I was just reading it. I know? saw they wanted to be baptized. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is the biggest cure for all this bad teaching, is just read the Bible and try to find a church that does expository preaching. Yeah, have a love for the truth, yeah. Yeah. priesthood of every believer. Yeah, and... Um, uh, and, and rather than zeroing in on one little verse, you know, you get the you get the kind of the the overview. You you get the general idea because of all of the verses, as you mentioned. There's all kinds of verses on repentance, all kinds of, and, and, but you get the you get the comprehensive view of it, rather than letting some cult like religious well, leader focus on. Or some they go small by thing. mystical. When I was at Bible college, we read the history of the Pentecostal movement because it was a Pentecostal Bible college. But when we were, I was, I still had that book. I was reading it as for one of my classes. You know where the Jesus only penalty, they deny the Trinity. You know where that came from? Somebody came along. They were having the, they used to have these camp meetings where everybody come and stay in tents and whatever and bring in preachers. That's sort of the kind of thing I spoke at as a new Christian, but Somebody came through saying, in Acts, they were baptized in the name of Jesus only. So therefore, the Trinity is false. Uh, And they ended up with some sort of a modal monarchialism. Is that the right thing for? Anyhow, for here, one of the most famous, powerful preachers everybody wanted to hear was at the meeting. He said, well, I better find out if that's true. So you know how he found out whether it was true? According to the, the history of the Pentecostals that I've read, Menzies, I think his name is. 
He went into his tent and stayed up all night praying, seeking direct revelation from God. So all night with no sleep praying, in the morning he came out and said, it's true, Jesus only. God told me. And that whole movement started, which is utterly heretical, because a guy stayed in his tent all night praying. He didn't search the scriptures, because God told him it was true. Well, then they had a big crisis. Uh, they gathered, the, the, the domination assemblies of God got started after that, because they had to finally say, okay, what doctors are we going to believe and not believe in? And then they had another crisis when the latter rain movement came along. So we want to, for one thing, take something like the Trinity. If it's always been believed by Christians, we want to be circumspect before we say, oh, no, now I know it's false. I spent all night in a tent. We want to search the scriptures and look at some of the writings of people who've defended it. And when they use scripture, are they using it appropriately? Uh, In other words, when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration and the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. Well, you have the father in heaven, right? And the son... Okay, is this teaching us Jesus only? Uh, modal monarchialism, whatever. It's heresy. I remember uh, Walter Martin on a videotape d- debating with uh, people from the, down on I-94. They had their headquarters, Apostolic Bible or whatever. It's Jesus only. He's debating with their top guys who were really knew very little, but finally... Walter Martin said, listen, and he confessed Christ. He confessed who Christ is, what he did, that he believed in Christ, that Christ was his Lord and Savior, he confessed the truth of the gospel, and just pleaded. He said, will you guys say that I'm your brother in Christ? They wouldn't do it. They, think, they thought Walter Martin was going to hell because it wasn't Jesus only. Because he believed in the Trinity. That's where this leads. And the end is, we're the only ones. And if you don't come to us and do everything we tell you to do, you're going to hell. With evangelicals like that, who needs Rome? You see what I'm saying? Keep searching the scriptures. I love to see a hunger to learn. And so let me go back to my point. When we're going through Acts, we were looking for themes, but we can't create induction to prove a doctrine when the sequence doesn't hold 100%. Like my son, poor Colin, he's stuck with my story forever and ever. Uh, My son's balloon. One case of a balloon with no string landed on the ground convinced him that the string didn't make the balloon go up. Now, he was like four years old or whatever. But one counterexample destroys the sequence. Does that make sense? Now, 
be careful about that. So, oh, we were talking about repentance. We got about three minutes here. I think this is available, but I found this by looking by doing a search of the Greek words, and then finding the English translation. Repentance, Luke three three five thirty two, fifteen seven. Here, let me just read one quickly. It'll give you an idea of values. What's important to the New Testament writers who were inspired by the Spirit and to Jesus who's cited here? Luke 15 and verse 7. Luke 15 and verse 7. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now there's a little irony going on. What's the irony? There are no righteous persons. They just think they are. Weren't they criticizing Jesus for hanging around with sinners? And so the right self-righteous go, oh, good, I need no repentance. Now, why am I just special pleading? No, because in the same Luke, repentance for forgiveness of sin is to be preached to all people. The righteous who need no repentance only need no repentance in their own mind. Is that right? Would you agree with that, Eric? Okay. Um, But it shows us value, too. Why should we be gospel preachers? If one sinner repents, there's rejoicing in heaven. Yes, um, that Scott. Can, that that uh, list that you have there in your hand can be found on the website under last week's Sunday School under the Download tab. It says Repentance Handout. Okay, Repentance Handout, Download tab, ggf.church. I have it in verb and noun form. Just in Luke Acts, there's more in the rest of the Bible. Now, uh, look at Acts 11, 18. We've got a couple of minutes. Acts 11, 18. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well, then God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. God granted that Gentiles would repent. See, the worst thing we could do is think that we're the righteous who don't need any. God is happy with me because I am, and then you say something about yourself. I am a young, strong man. Is that going to get you to heaven? I am fastidious about keeping kosher. Will I get you to heaven? I have been circumcised on the eighth day. Remember Paul saying that? Can't boast about that. I am rich. I am pious. I am a Pharisee. I am a Sadducee. I have have authority and rule. I am a temple person in the priesthood there. All these things in Luke Acts, none of it will do you any good. But you can be the worst horrific sinner 
that, you, that nobody ever would think God wanted anything to do with. And if you repent, there's joy in heaven. That's not hyperbole. There really is. Because when we read in Revelation, what are they continually doing? Rejoicing and worshiping and praising God for saving and demonstrating his grace and his mercy. And Paul talked about that as the chief of sinner. God had shown him mercy. So it's the universal call. It's what changes lives. But it's only done because God grants it and God uses means. And the means is the preaching of Christ. Forgiveness of sins has got to be central. If you have a church, no matter what they call themselves, they don't even talk about forgiveness of sins, you got a problem. Does that make sense? Who needs forgiveness of sins? All humans. But see, you got these people who say there's no sin nature. If you just try harder, you can get rid of your own sin. That's heresy, rightly deemed heresy. So, I was asked to say that if we only get through one verse, which we did, or no, three really, one slide, see, we're going to be here. Bring your sheets back. We're going to save paper, save work for Christy. Bring your sheet back. We put it in your. Bible, bring it back. Because next week, we're going to go to Acts 13, 26 to 27 and look at the irony of how they hear these things every single Sabbath for centuries. And then when it's preached to them, they don't like it. There's an irony there. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness and goodness for saving sinners. Thank you that we could open up the scriptures today and learn more about your ways. Thank you for the fact that unworthy as we are, when we turn to you, there's joy in heaven. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.